Jonah chapter 3. Today I'm going to talk about God's concern for the city in Jonah chapter 3. And we are going to take a couple weeks to, uh, to look at this. We actually, because of the holiday, will not come back to the second part of this until um, after the new year. If you were to divide up Jonah chapter 3, you would do it in three ways. First way is God with Jonah before Nineveh. Uh, what was he doing as he made his way to uh, the city? The second part of that we will look at in a couple of weeks is what was God doing with Jonah um, as he walked in the streets of Nineveh? And then the very last verse of the chapter is God's perspective of what God did with Jonah in his, his ministry um, there. Uh, I want to start today not in chapter 3, but actually the verse right before it in, in chapter 2, verse 10. And uh, I first want to talk about this morning uh, the sure moments of our life. Not the sure moments, but the sure moments of our lives. And if you look with me in Jonah 2, verse 10. So he's been in the fish for 72 hours, and it says, The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So Jonah is no longer inside the belly of the great fish. He is standing on the shore. So what's going to happen in these moments on the shore, I think, are critical for what is going to take place uh, moving forward. Everything now is going to be different for Jonah. Life, because of the experience, is going to be different in two ways. One, just the experience has changed him, right? Just to live where he has lived for 72 hours is one of those moments he's not going to forget it. He's going to be reminded of that reality every day of his life. But there's a second type of change that comes, and it's his response to the change and to the experience. So one is just the experience has changed him, but then there's going to be the response to the experience that has changed him. Is he going to follow through with what he's vowed? What's going to happen? Or is he going to continue to be kind of as he was now that he is out? And so he is there. And let me just say this as well. This could not have been an easy experience. Um, It's been a long time since I have experienced this word here that is not pleasant with the stomach and the mouth. But you've all been there before. And it can be when the stomach says, I've got something for you, mouth. And the mouth says, I'm not interested in what you have for me. And when the stomach wins out, it's a violent movement of the body and what happens there. And so as Jonah's in the belly of the well, him coming out onto the shore was not something that was easy. He was not wrapped in bubble wrap. He, would, he didn't have scuba suit on. I mean, he goes from the stomach to the throat to the mouth to the shore and this was had to have been a messy violent experience and I think the point there is simply this if you're going what is the point of all that talk here's the point restoration from sin sometimes can be very painful and very messy and I think Jonah though he has been restored in the belly of the fish is now at a place where as he is thrown out into the shore it is a painful moment It is a messy moment, and it is a powerful moment. Picture with me him lying on the beach. Now, we we don't really know where he was spit up on the shore. Um, If we had to guess, possibly back at Joppa again. That's where he was trying to run. So possibly God is like, okay, I'm going to put you back where you started this journey, trying to get away from me. And so he's lying on the shore. He is breathing heavily. he has been in utter darkness for 72 hours. Now the sun is there. Um, he is probably covering his eyes. He is squinting. He's coughing. He's wiping fish slime. I don't know what he's doing out of his face. He's got, I mean, he is a mess as he is on the shore. And as he is there, begins this process of God doing something unique in him that had begun inside the fish, but now it's going to demand a little bit more obedience. Because here's the reality. We have all been there. A moment of crisis, God, I'm, I'm all on board, God. Get me out of this, and I'm on board. We get out of it, and then we're like, am I fully on board with this? And we begin to examine the vows that we are, and so here he is, he's there. And this moment for him is going to demand life change. And so, so I want to talk about these moments on the shore just for a moment. And, and we have all experienced moments as well in our life that have really transformed us. Maybe sickness, it may be 
um, something else with someone that we deeply love, whatever the case may be, there are moments that have dramatically altered our life, and we're not ever going to be the same from those moments again. So they are moments that mark us permanently, moments that we may think about every day. There may be um, thoughts about that, not that it dominates us and destroys our life and gets us down, but they're just things that have transformed our lives and that have come to us that are really dramatic, and, and, and this is what is the case with Jonah. Now, let me just talk about this just for a moment. Pre-Jonah chapter 1, Jonah's life was going okay. God had used him. We saw in, in 2 Kings chapter 14, he had used him to speak to the king. Um, God had revealed his secrets to him. He had been used to communicate something that God was going to do with the ten tribes of the northern kingdom uh, called Israel. Now God comes and Jonah rebels against God's word and God's purposes for him. And now Jonah has something, watch this, you may have this as well. He has a past now. He's got something back there that if he could go back, he might do things differently. But, but as you know, he can't go back there and do anything differently. So now he's on the shore and he's got a past. There's that guy that didn't listen to God. He did his own thing. He ran from God. He got swallowed up by the great fish. He got spat out. And so there's that guy. He's got a past. He likely probably never thought that he would be in a place where he's like, no, God, I'm not going to follow you. But now he's at a place where he was at a place where he wasn't going to follow God. And now he's got to be at the place. Now, what am I going to do moving ahead? And so he's got this past that he's got to move forward from. And for all of us, that's got to be the case for us. We've got things back there in our past. Again, that if we could go back and do them differently, we would, but they are there. They have marked us, and for Jonah, this has marked him. I think not only spiritually has things changed for him, but I think physically things have changed for him. Just think for a moment, 72 hours in the belly of a great fish with stomach acid. There have been some things in history where people have been swallowed by literally by whales, um, the wells have been killed not too long after that. They have opened up the well, and there's a person inside who's still alive on conscience. Every one of those people, history records for us, either their hair turned completely white all over, or they lost every bit of body hair physically. Their skin changed as well. So likely, this has happened for Jonah as well. When you get to chapter 4, God's going to bring up this plant to give him shade. Possibly it's because... His skin is real sensitive to the sunlight now, and he needs some shade. And so God grows this plant, and we'll look at that in chapter 4. Jonah's kind of angry about the plant, and, and there's some things there um, with that. And so, so I think he's physically changed as well. I think he's spiritually changed. Um, he's got a past now. He's got, he's got all of this stuff. And so let me ask this. What do we do in the moments that mark our lives permanently? And they're just significant moments. How do we respond to them, and how do we move forward? Secondly, he's on the shore. And what do you do with the moments after you vowed something? So we know in the valley, in, in the belly of the well, and look at Jonah 2, verse 9, he says, But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And what I have vowed, God, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And again, as I said a while ago, we've kind of all been there. I've been there before where um, God rescued me out of and I've vowed that I'm not going to make this decision again. Things are going to be different for me. And then a day or two later, the flesh starts talking, and the flesh says, you know, if you're going to follow through and all those commitments that you made, um, it's going to cost something. Do you know, do you recognize what it's going to cost? Do you really, really want to do that? Do you really want to follow through? And there's kind of those moments after we vow of, am I going to follow through with what I said to God? Now, we have all, and I've done it as well, I've promised God some things in my life that I haven't followed through on. And I've had to come back and say, God, um, I shouldn't have vowed that unless I was ready. I, shouldn't, I should have kept, as Ecclesiastes said, I should have not gone to the house of the Lord and boasted about things that I was going to do that I really wasn't for sure that I was going to do them. So here's Jonah on the shore. He could have momentarily thought about that and wondered, man, what am I going to do? And what was his flesh saying to him? Now, in these moments, I believe this is what happens, and we'll see it in the story today. They, these are moments now where God can speak freshly. If you've ever had a crushing moment, awakening moment, where God, um, you've gone through something, and God has done a work, and you're there, or there's a lesson that you and I have learned from sin, these are moments where God, um, after repentance, can really speak freshly to us in our lives. And so here's Jonah. 
He's now been broken. He's realized his sin. And we will see his response here in just a moment. So not only are they those things where God speaks freshly, but I think they are moments of new beginnings. This is a new beginning for Jonah. He's going to have a chance now um, to have a moving forward point now on the shore from what he has done. Now listen, God has, God has met him and Jonah has met God in the belly of the great fish. Now he's on the shore, God's not like backed away. Guess who's on the shore with Jonah as well? God is. God has not abandoned him. God is still with him. His, this is a place where God is still surrounded Jonah and he is with Jonah. And I love this about God and I love this about the story of Jonah that we are walking through. A lot of my life I've read Jonah and knew the story. I've read all four chapters. They're simple. You can, re- you can sit down and read them. They are short. Some of the, some of the chapters are just ten verses. You can just read it really quick. And, and most of my life I've kind of been critical about him. A little more critical than I needed to be, and some of it rightly so. But, but now that we're into chapter 3, I sometimes go, man, I'm, I am like him sometimes. And I, I need to check my heart as well to make sure that I am not ever in an area of my life running away from God's call upon me. So here's Jonah. This is a new beginning with him. But here's the great thing about God that we see in the life of Jonah And he's done this, and you and I, probably all over this room, we could stand up and we could tell a story where sin was great in our life, and we had really gotten caught up into something that was not God-honoring. What did we eventually find out? That what abounded more? Grace. So here's Jonah. He has run from God. It is costing greatly, spiritually, physically, reputation, all of these things. And listen to what Paul says. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the kind of grace that God works. And in the midst of our sin in the circumstances that His grace can abound more than the worst mistakes that we can make. Grace is so great, it abounds more, that God can take our circumstances and do what? Give us a fresh start and to move us forward. Are you not thankful for that today? Can you imagine where we could be if grace could not abound more than the sin that you and I could commit? So praise His name today. As a matter of fact, also, with Jonah, we learned this, um, connected to some words from Jesus, is life always comes from a death. It's just always been the case. Listen to what Jesus said, John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And so a death has come in Jonah, and now there's a new beginning, there's a new opportunity for life. And so these are moments that dramatically can change us. And let me tell you why they can change us. This is one of the, it's, I, I get it, I grasp it, but it's one of the just beautiful things that the scripture speaks about. You know why Jonah gets a second chance? It's because God is a pursuing God. He's after us. You see, if, if God was like us, and we'd done, we had done to God what Jonah had done, and we were God, we would just say to Jonah, okay, be on your way. Have fun in Spain. Have fun in Spain. But I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do it. But here's what God does. God says, I'm not letting you get to Spain. And I'm going to pursue you in such a way to keep you from it. And here's the reality. Chapter 3, first part of verse 1. Look at it. It says, And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Not a first time, but a what? A second time. So God is continuing to pursue Jonah. Jonah, bottom of the, under the water, in the ocean, bottom of the mountain. Chapter 2, he talks about that. The seaweed is wrapped around him. He is enchained in the seaweed. It's wrapped around his head. God appoints the great fish to come and swallow him out of the seaweed. And he's been rescued. 
God was pursuing Jonah. Notice that it's a God's pursuit is personal. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Didn't come to Joel. Didn't come to Amos about Nineveh. It came to Jonah again, the one who had been running. So God is giving him this other opportunity, and it's personal in nature. God's pursuit is persistent. God comes a second time to Jonah. He doesn't just write him off, but he comes a second time and gives him an opportunity. And not only that, God's pursuit of Jonah was purposeful. God wanted, watch, wanted to still accomplish God's purpose in Nineveh, and he wanted still to use Jonah. And I'm so grateful, and I know you are too. And by the way, it's okay to say amen. Can we practice? Say amen. amen. One, two, three. Okay, so if you need to say amen, say amen. I am so grateful because if God, again, was like you and I, we would have been written off a long time ago. And we have a present day hope. We have a future hope because God is a pursuing God, not wanting to write us off, but wanting to bring us to a place of repentance and continuing to be used by him, even after we have done some things that we wish we hadn't. So look at those things on the screen again. The pursuit of the Lord was after Jonah. It's after you and I. It's personal. He was after Jonah, came to him. God was persistent. He continued to pursue him, and it was purposeful, is that his pursuit was he wanted Jonah to accomplish what God wanted for him. All right, third thing this morning is I want to talk about... uh, Chapter 3, let's read 3, 1 through 4, and we'll kind of get the context here. And then I want to talk about the word and going. All right, chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah in a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And now Nineveh is an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. All right, let's stop there. That's as far as we're going to go today. But I have some things to say that I think are really important for us. These four verses are so rich with something that you and I need to get. So I need to ask you a question this morning. Are you ready for what God's about to say? I hope you are. This has worked me over this week. And so um, I'm going to let it work on you a little bit as it works on me as I proclaim it. I want to talk about what does it look like when God begins to do something significant among a group of people. What What is God doing before this awakening comes and before a revival comes. Throughout the history of the world, there's been moments where God has spoken and God's presence has come to a place and it has has changed everybody. And one of the main things that God does when He begins to do a great work is this, is that you can look in the Old Testament, you can look in the New Testament, and you can look throughout history of the church up until this day. When God comes to believers... And he speaks his word and reveals himself to them through his word. There is a calling that is connected to this speaking. It has always been that way. God comes to Abram. He is an idol worshiper. I'm going to make you a great nation. And I want you to go to the land that I'm going to tell you. So God speaks to him and calls him to go. We also know this. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this great vision. He sees the throne room of God where the angels are worshiping the glory of God, saying, holy, holy, holy. The indication is the Trinity's having a conversation. Who's going to go for us to these people? Isaiah says what? Here am I, God. I'm willing to go. So again, God speaks. There's a response of one of the followers to say, I hear, I'll go. Last words Jesus spoke before he ascended. We call it the Great Commission. And he says this, go, speaks to them, go into all the world, teach them what I've taught you, and baptize them as they come to faith in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus speaks, and he tells them to go. We just finished reading the book of Acts. 
Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost. He preaches. Most of the content of his sermon is Old Testament Scripture, proclaiming who Jesus is. Acts chapter 28, Paul now, forefront leader of the church. He's in Rome. Chapter 28, I love how chapter 28 ends. I, I, hope, I, hope, I hope you finished Acts well. Because chapter 28 was incredible. Paul's in Rome, and it, that chapter 28 just closes in Acts with these words. And Paul remained there two years, teaching and proclaiming over and over. He finished. That's what he did. So he couldn't go anywhere, but he could go in the prison. And he could go where he was under house arrest. And he went where he was, and he proclaimed. So watch this. God, his heart, has always been about speaking to his people and his people hearing that and doing what? Going. They go. And this is what he does with Jonah a second time. He speaks to Jonah and he tells Jonah to go. Now, the depth and the majesty and the greatness and the glory of God is vast, it is huge, it is great. We cannot even comprehend the greatness of our God. And yet, when it comes to our God, He is very simplistic in His mission. It is not complicated. And it's this, He came to seek and save who? The lost. God's heart is calling His people to Himself, His people knowing Him, sending His people to go talk about Him and proclaim Him so that others will come to faith. So the aim, the great aim of God's Word is to transform us, to change us. Again, God is huge. He is deep. But His mission is the greatness of His name in bringing people and drawing people to relationship with Him. And so the aim and work of God's Word is to transform us. I want to share two passages. Paul wrote to Timothy, this pastor, young pastor, likely the pastor of the Ephesians church at this time, and in 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, this is what Paul writes to him. All Scripture, that means Jonah, Hebrews, Mark, Jude, all Scripture is breathed out, breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God or the student of God or the child of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, we've talked about this. If we all get to stay together for a while, we're going we're gonna to die together. We're not going to drink Kool-Aid one day, Okay. <laughs> But we're going to go to each other's funerals over the years. And I hope we get to do that. And here's what we will learn as we begin to do that. We will see this. Is that all along the way as we grow together. Well, all along we did one thing over and over and over and over again at LifePoint. And it was this. Is we proclaim the glory of God through the scripture. And I'm not after anybody's emotion today. Because if I could get your emotions stirred up, I could get you to make a decision. It might may not be one that, that you're going to hang on to. But if I can do this, if I can just proclaim the greatness of God from the Scripture, in that I just want to trust that God has the ability to do what He wants to, to make that application to our lives, whatever that looks like. I have this happen to me all the time. Man, you were speaking to me today. And this is what, this is what God said. And then I talk to somebody else and it's completely different. And what happens is in a room like this, God makes the application of truth to our lives in so many unique, beautiful ways. And so that's why what we do is we just proclaim this. And here's why. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word changes us because it alone can touch us where change needs to come. I can't get there. But what I can do today is say, God is so incredible. He is so awesome. He is so majestic. He is so good. He is so loving. 
He hates sin. He has goodness in mind for you. So come to Him and so I can proclaim those things and trust that the Word will come and bring the chains and touch what needs to be touched so that you and I will go there for from there and bring change to others by proclaiming who He is. Now the fourth thing I want to talk about today and Maya, could you put a couple of pictures? I got a couple of pictures I want to put up here. And I want to talk about God's concern for the city. So twice, in 1, 2, and in 3, 2, God tells Jonah to go to the city called Nineveh. Now, I think one of the issues Jonah had about going to Nineveh was this. He loved what city? What city did he love more than any other? Jerusalem. I mean, for the Jews, is there a grander? There's not a more important city. I mean, Jerusalem is it. And so I think for him... Because the Assyrians had come in before and they had, they had done a great, great evil work against the people of God. And, and for the thought of Jonah to go to Nineveh, that city, and preach and what God might do in the midst of that city, it just was too big for him to compute. And that's why he ran in the very beginning. And he tells us that in chapter 4, verse 2. God, here's the reason why I didn't want to go to Nineveh because I knew you would rescue them and you would save them. And so, so he, watch, God is wanting to get Jonah to the place where Jonah's heart for Nineveh was somewhat like God's heart that he had for Nineveh. Now, I've got two pictures up there, and there are two cities in my life. There's been a number of them that had dramatic input or impact upon my life. And the one on the left with the towers is the city of Dusseldorf that I lived for four years. And over a four-year period of time, Dusseldorf is about 600,000 people. Um, I walked, I almost got it accomplished, walking every single city in Dusseldorf proper and praying on every single city over four years. That'll do something to your life. Walking the streets, praying and asking God to do something uh, in the midst of the city that you live in. And I, uh, there's not a day goes by that I don't think about Dusseldorf. As a matter of fact, on my when I pull up my webpage to my computer, I have all the webcams that you can see all over Dusseldorf, and I press it almost every day and look at the live webcams of the city that I used to walk. So it's just my heart for that city, and I haven't been back there in a number of years now, about seven years now, um, is still a big part of my life. The other one there is last May. Our luggage didn't arrive in Kathmandu, and so we had to spend the night in Kathmandu. Mark and I had to share a room. Mark Verlander's an awesome guy. He took the couch and let me have the bed. I tried to take the couch, but he refused. So I gladly took the bed. So anyway. <clears throat> and from our window, I took that picture of Kathmandu as the sun was going down. And I love Kathmandu. It's an amazing city, but it's full of idol worship. And it's a sad, sad, sad city. It's tragic. I love Dusseldorf. It's beautiful. It sits on the Rhine River, and it's just incredible. But Dusseldorf loves darkness and hates the light of the gospel. And yet those two cities have had a dramatic impact on my heart because God has welled up in my heart His concern for those cities. And I love our cities. I live in McKinney. I don't live in Prosper. I don't live in Plano. I don't live in wherever, Melissa, wherever it is that you live. But you know what God wants to do in our heart? He wants our heart to be like his for the cities. And God is deeply concerned for the city. Let me tell you about Nineveh. Nineveh was a vile place. Later, Nineveh is going to repent under Jonah. Later, a number of years later, a number of decades later, Nineveh is going to sin again, and God's going to send the prophet Nahum to them. And Nahum's going to write about Nineveh. It's the most violent, bloody bloodthirsty city of its day just unbelievable violence likely it's that it was that way as well when Jonah was going to go I love what archaeology does and I don't know if you read much I I try to read up on biblical archaeology there's some websites out there that kind of show you in the last 20 years there's been a lot of attack on the Bible in at the book of Jonah saying this the ancient cities were not large like Jonah 3 describes Nineveh they weren't big like that. They were small, compact cities with walls. 
so that they could um, easily protect um, those that lived inside the walls. Well, what archaeology has shown us in the last 20 years in ancient city Nineveh, which is modern-day Mosul in Iraq, is that they have discovered that Nineveh was a lot like New York City. It's called New York City, but it has lots of other cities that have been swallowed into New York City. And they've discovered that Nineveh had swallowed about five other cities, and it was 60 miles in circumference. It would take you three days to walk around the walls of Nineveh. The walls were about 100 foot tall. Did you hear that? 100 foot tall. They've been able to dig a little bit deeper and see how, how high these things were. They had towers on them. They had aqueducts and gardens, and they had farms inside the walls. You talk about 60 miles circumference. They had all those things in there. It's estimated that 600,000 to a million people lived inside Nineveh. We know from chapter 4 that there's 120,000 that God says who don't know their left hand from their right hand, and that is an indication likely of infants. One's not old enough to know right hand, left hand. So there's at least 120,000 young children living in Nineveh. This is a big place. Now watch this. God's concern for the city is so big that he sends one man to go to the city. And I want you to picture with me just for a moment. Jonah must have thought to himself, what am I going to do in Nineveh? Can Can you just think about that for a moment? The largest, most powerful ancient city in the world, and he's going to go by himself to Nineveh. Guess what he's going to be armed with? The Word of God. That's it. (laughs) He's going to step in and say, okay, God's told me to do this, and he's going to step in, and he's just going to proclaim what God has told him to say. It's the only tool that he's going to have when he gets into Nineveh. Now, God's presence is going to be with him, and God's call is going to be on him. But Jonah found out that it's not the size of man. It's not, the, not, not what man can do, but it's what God can do. Listen to these words. We know them well. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news but if they have not ob- but they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says lord who has believed what he has heard from us so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ so here's Jonah walking up to Nineveh He is standing before this massive city, violent city, full of idol worship, full of murder. And he steps into the streets and all he has is the command of God and the word of God. And God does something in Nineveh that is absolutely amazing. Possibly the greatest revival in the history of the world takes place in a pagan city called Nineveh through one man, Jonah. Why does God do that? How can God do that? Listen to these words, Isaiah 55, 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to be empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So God's going to do his work. Through our ingenuity? No. Through the proclamation of the truth, telling other people the truth about Christ, and God is not going to allow His Word to come back to Him empty. But let me ask a question for LifePoint. Y'all ready, LifePoint? So are we up to the task? You know, we're a small church, you know, about 250 people, and you know, we got more people that come, but about 250 on a Sunday, and you know, do we have the finances to impact the world? Do we have the wisdom to impact the world? Do we have this? Do we have that? Are we up to the task? Well, can I just tell you, it has nothing to do with you and I. It has everything to do with His sufficiency. Listen to these words. 2 Corinthians 3, 4. 
Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, Paul says. So what do we do? This little church has sent out about 100 people this year on mission. We have done a number of things. We've built a church this year among unreached people in Nepal. We have seen God restore things. We have seen God do a number of different things in our midst here. God has brought new people to us. And the thing is, it's not how great we are because... Have you looked around the room? There's not a lot of great people in here in regard to comparison to God. But here we are. A heart yielded is all that God needs. So here's Jonah, I think, stepping into Nineveh based on what he's like in chapter 4. Probably not all fully in. Still has problems with the Ninevites. And yet he's just going to be obedient. And he's going to do what God says to him to do. And God does a great work. God is concerned about the city. Do you hear me today? He's concerned about the city. He's concerned. If he's concerned about Nineveh, he's concerned about Collin County. I want to close with this. And close means we're not done. It means it's the last point, okay? All right? And I want to talk about this, and I'm going to be real brutally honest this morning, so put your big person pants on, okay, and strap them up, because we're just going to, um, I sat in that room right over there, and God worked me over this week with these first four verses of chapter three, and so I'm going to let them be worked on you um, like they worked on me, and I want to, I want to, I want to talk about What is necessary? What are the steps? What happens before God does something significant among a people? What are the first things that happen? And let me say this. Those of of us who grew up in church, you remember we used to have revival services every fall and every spring? Y'all remember, raise your hand, you used to have revival services. Can I tell you, you cannot schedule revival. You can't put revival on a calendar. So we used to probably should have said those things differently. You know, Bible conference, I don't know what the case is. But I used to grow up and we had revival every year, spring, um, fall and spring. And we never had revival. So I kept wondering why. I guess we're hoping maybe one day it's going to click and kind of turn in. And I think God did something in the midst of those. But I'm talking about real awakening. And I want to talk about what does that look like. So y'all with me? Y'all ready? Have you buckled your belt? You ready? Okay, here we come. All right. God is not ever going to do anything among a people unless his people first repent of their sin. Every great move of God throughout history has begun not with the lost. It's come with who? God's people getting their hearts right. That's why Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, Verse 17, he writes these words, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what's going to be the outcome for those who disobey the gospel of God? And then Peter says, And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what's going to be the result or the end result of the ungodly and the sinner? So watch. If God is ever, ever going to do something in America again, it's going to begin with God's people saying, I'm done with the trinkets of the world, and Christ is my treasure. I'm done with sin. I'm done with empty living. I am going to walk with God, and I'm going to yield with God, and I'm going to give my heart to God, and I'm going to bury, try to bury sin. I'm going to reject sin. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to stomp on it. So God is not ever going to do anything until God's people get right in sin. Do you hear me? So we can, we can schedule meetings. We can do all kinds of things. And I think God is waiting for people like you and I to say, okay, God, yeah, I'm on board with that. I'm on board with me dealing with my sin. 
the Reformation was this way in the 1500s where God came along and He began to awaken people. They began to deal with the sinful, corrupt nature of the church. The priests had children literally everywhere out the Roman Empire. They were, they were single but were fathers to multiple children who became orphans living in the city streets. Just immorality was unbelievable. And God began to awaken in people like William Tyndale and, and Martin Luther. And the main theme that kind of came out of the Reformation was Scripture alone. There were five solas. The foundation one was everything has to flow from Scripture. Now watch this. If God's going to move, it's going to be because His people are done with sin and they want to walk in holiness. And when they're done with sin and they repent of their sin, then God comes fresh. And not a new revelation in regard to new Scripture, but God makes His Word fresh among those people. And He speaks freshly. You read about the great awakening that happened here in America. You know what happened? God's people got their heart right with God and God's people came alive again to God's word and God began to impact those people. Ezra, in the book of Ezra, when they came back, exiles came back from uh, their exile. One of the things that happened is they loved God's word and they loved God so much that one day the whole nation gathered in Jerusalem. And you know what they did? From morning to midday, they just read God's word and everybody stood at attention. Think we could pull that off here? No, you know, because the Cowboys play at 1220 today. Are you going to be done? I'll be done. What do you think might happen? If we just said, God... Your word is that for me. And I'm done with man speaking. I'm done with this. It's your word. And if you and I would repent, God does this. Jonah has repented. And his heart has gotten right and God's word has come fresh to him. And now Jonah begins to go forward. And this is what happens when God, God's people repent. God speaks freshly in their midst. They're awakened to the word. Then they begin to move forward in holy obedience. Repentance has come. The word comes alive again. There's a desire among God's people to walk in obedience to the truth of God. And so that's what happens. God speaks to Jonah. Arise, Jonah. Get up. Get off the beach. Get off the shore and go to Nineveh. This is a moving forward faith. This is not a, I'm just going to sit here, oh, oh, three hard days, it was really tough, and, and God, I want to take a break. No, Jonah, go. Get your heart in line with my heart. And he begins to move forward, where before he ran, and it caused all kinds of things. Now he's like, okay, that running thing, that, that doesn't work. So, okay, God, I'm on board. I'm going to Nineveh. And he speaks to him and says, arise, and Jonah gets up. And he moves forward. Let me ask ask us this question. Are you and I ready to move forward in holy obedience? In holy obedience. Here's the third thing that happens. He tells them, go to Nineveh, that great city. If God's ever going to do something, God's people are going to repent. God's going to speak freshly. He's going to awaken the word among his people. His people are going to walk in holy obedience. And thirdly, his people are going to align themselves with the heart of God's mission. And that's what Jonah does. He goes. God's mission was go to Nineveh. And so Jonah aligns his heart with the mission of God to be the vessel that God's going to use to bring salvation to the city of Nineveh. So are you and I at a place where we're ready to align our heart with the mission of God? Fourthly, as Jonah does this, Third part of verse 2 says, and call out against it. God's telling them the message that I tell you. Look at verse 3. And so Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So watch this. When God begins to move among the people, his people confess their sin. The word comes alive. People walk in holy 
obedience. They get their heart aligned with God's mission to take the truth of the gospel to others. And God's people then in that moment simplify their life in line with the mission of God. So here's what Jonah did. He wasn't going to go take a job for a little bit. He wasn't, he didn't, he didn't, may he, maybe he felt like he needed a vacation. He didn't take a vacation. He just simplified his life and said, you know what, I'm going to be about the gospel. My iPhone does this. Oh, man, I was thinking this yesterday. Don't you, I don't know, the younger generation would go, you're crazy, man. I wish we could go back and not have cell phones. This thing on my iPhone now tells me how much FaceTime, how much time. Have you, does yours do that to you too? Tells you how many hours you've been on? And I've been embarrassed lately. Sometimes I just have something on to listen to it. But, I, but why do I need to do that? Why do I need to do that? And I think we, just, we need to get back to the place where we, our life is simplified to the mission of God. And he tells him here, I want you to say what I tell you, not what you want to say. And so are we ready to do that? Are we ready to simplify our lives to the mission of God? Now here's the last thing. I said my office this week. And I got to, I got to verse 3, and I got to verse 4, and God broke me. And I was sitting at my desk, and I don't think Mark, I think Mark wasn't here. Mark was being lazy this week, and he left. And um, Were you gone? I think you were gone. You left. I think you're gone. His parents are here. So anyway, he had a good excuse. But I'm out here by myself with the birds, and my tears and and I want you to go with me and I want you to picture Jonah with me as we close Nineveh is a gigantic city and I want you to picture Jonah getting up and I want you to notice his facial expression I want you to notice his gait I want you to notice his body posture as he approaches this massive massive city and I want you to think back with me in Jonah chapter 1 where um, he didn't want to have anything to do with God. Biggest coward running. Let me get to Spain and I'll have a great life in Spain. Now look with me in Jonah chapter 3 where he is standing before the most magnificent and powerful city in the ancient world. He is all by himself. He has no companions. He has no accountability partners. He has no army. He has no sword he has no fellow staff members. He has no support system around him. He doesn't have, my gosh, such a bad missionary. He doesn't have a sending agency. Nobody's given him money and provided him insurance and blah, 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 so that, he, so that if things don't go well in Nineveh, by golly, his family's got some retirement or whatever the case may be. And I want you to picture him standing before this massive city all by himself. Again, nobody with him. And he steps into that city armed with the eternal word of God, exactly what God's told him to do. And he steps in the city and he's got a complicated message. Hey, repent. In 40 days, God's about to do this city in. You better repent. Hey, hey, streets over here, God's about to do your city in, repent. And he goes through the city, and we will see a couple of weeks from now, because we're going to have to take a break, that all through the city, people are falling on their face before Yahweh in this pagan city through the proclamation of a reluctant prophet. And God saves, watch this, the indication is, the entire city and it gets all the way up to the king and the king removes his royal clothes and sits pagan king in sackcloth and ashes 
as the Jews did. And I sat at my desk and I thought, most of my life I've been critical of Jonah. And in Jonah chapter 3, I want to be just like him. I want to be just like that. I want to be willing to be the kind of person who doesn't care and who steps into a place and says, I am armed with the presence and the power and the call of God. And this is who God is. And to proclaim it. Jonah has this unashamed confidence by embracing the risk that's connected with going with the gospel. And he's one man alone, but he's got somebody pretty big with him. He's got God. And I wondered this week, for you and me, are we willing to live that way? Again, watch this. Don't make a bunch of promises in this room this morning. That would be a tragedy if we're not willing to follow through. I was wondering if there were some of us ready for this, then this is what would it look like in this room today, tonight, this afternoon. We deal with our sin. Church, listen to me. Everybody looking up here? Looking up here. Look right here. God hates sin. And he's not going to bless it. So I asked him this week, would you begin in me, God, show me things that I cannot even see. Because I don't want to live an empty life anymore. And my life's not empty. I love him. But I want to live a more full life. I know what it's like to walk intimately with him. Now, one of the beautiful things about Jonah is this that we'll see. In this moment, he's pretty brave. Chapter 4, he's not so brave. He's a complainer. But isn't there hope if God can use somebody like that, that he could do something with us? So what's it going to be? It's a hard word, right? Well, I don't know. Some of this tastes good, doesn't it, to hear this? It's time, life point. It's time for us to be done with the trinkets of this world and find Christ as the treasure and to live in that passion, to live in that reality. And I think that's what God is calling us to as we, finish, as we see Jonah in the streets of Nineveh. Let's pray.